I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. Since the Supreme Court decided the Janus v. AFSCME case and held that forcing government workers to pay union fees was an unconstitutional infringement of their free speech rights, union-aligned governments have come up with some creative approaches to supporting their government worker union allies. California hasn't even bothered with creativity. State's ruling Democrats recently enacted legislation to simply pay unions directly with $400 million in taxpayer money. Joining me to discuss this latest case of California becoming what I've called Big Labor's Golden State is Rachel Gressler, Research Fellow in Economics, Budget, and Entitlements at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Rachel, before we begin, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and the work you do for Heritage? Yes, so I focus a lot on labor policy and also just general economics. I've been at the Heritage Foundation for about nine years now, and prior to that, I worked on Capitol Hill for the Joint Economic Committee, which functions a little bit like a think tank for Congress. So uh, you wrote about this California law for uh, Heritage's news service, The Daily Signal. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes. So on the surface here, we have a law that's been signed by Governor Newsom right now. Um, What it does is it provides up to $400 million of taxpayers' money to directly pay for public and private employees' union dues. Um, If you look at it just on the surface, this is Assembly Bill 185. This is $400 million to a select group of people who choose to purchase a private service. That private service here is being a member of a union. Um, The stated intent there is to help individuals with the cost of being a member of a union. But California lawmakers haven't passed or proposed bills that are providing hundreds of millions of dollars to help people with the cost of becoming a member of their AAA or local gym or the Farm Bureau. So why is it for labor unions alone? And that's where I think we get into the legal and ethical problems. So I suppose start with the legal ones. Um, obviously, we have this Supreme Court decision uh, from 2018, if, I, if I'm recalling correctly, mm-hmm. that says that the old-fashioned way that unions would get more money than they reasonably were getting from their members was if, you were, if your workplace and the government was unionized, you had to pay a fee in a state like California that doesn't have a right-to-work law. Mm-hmm. Uh, even as the union was gaining the benefit of exclusive monopoly representation. And the Supreme Court said that in the government, that's not okay. Yes. The Supreme Court ruled in that Janus decision that public sector unions are inherently political. And so states, therefore, can't force employees to pay anything towards that union because that's a violation of their First Amendment free speech rights. Um, I think that the lawmakers in California and the unions who are behind this bill have thought that they've gotten a workaround here because what they are doing instead is not forcing the employees themselves, but instead taxpayers to pay for that money directly. But that should be an even worse violation of your free speech rights than it was for the employees themselves because taxpayers can't even join that union to which they are now required to pay union dues. And when you look at what unions do with that dues money, and in particular, what public sector unions do, 
you know, an estimate for California public sector unions said that they spend at least a third of members dues. That's $300 million per year or $600 million per election cycle on explicitly political purposes. That's things like campaign contributions that, by the way, go almost entirely to Democrat candidates and also lobbying for almost exclusively liberal causes. Um, and so that clearly is a violation of taxpayers, you know, free speech rights if they are having to fund these things. But the problem is in California, the public sector unions have so much sway you know, we've had people commenting here, there's no special interest in California that wields more influence over state and local politics than public sector unions, with rare exceptions to defy their agenda is certain political suicide. And, and, to, get, and to get an idea of how radical these government worker unions in California are, uh, you know, when there, there obviously was a lot of controversy about reopening schools and California was one of the worst for keeping schools closed. Um, and so the teachers union in Los Angeles was asked, the, the head of the teachers union in Los Angeles was asked, you know, are you worried about learning loss? And she gave possibly the most extreme quote by a public figure in my memory uh, she told she told a, the a a magazine reporter this quote: "Our kids didn't lose anything. It's okay that our babies may not have learned all their times tables. They learned resilience. They learned survival. They learned critical thinking skills. They know the difference between a riot and a protest. They know the words insurrection and coup." <laughs> that was her response to a question about learning loss from the school closures. Yeah, I'm speechless here as a parent who has six young kids in elementary and middle school. And the thought that if I were living in tax in California, my taxpayer dollars would be directly funding somebody who is vehemently working against the interests of my children. Um, you know, so now that we know, you know, we've gone into just, you know, how radical and how influential the teachers unions in California are. You know, what are the conceptual problems with government worker unionism in general? Um, you know, it's often remarked, and it, and it is correct, that uh, Franklin Roosevelt, of all people, guy who signed the National Labor Relations Act, strong supporter of private sector trades unionism, uh, was extremely skeptical of collective bargaining in the government sector. Yeah, he actively warned against public sector unions, and he argued that it's the whole of the people who are paying for government. And in the case of public sector unions, that whole of the people, they don't have a seat at the negotiating table with those unions. Um, and so now, not only do California taxpayers not have a seat at that table, but they're actually forced to fund the salaries of both sides of the table. They're funding the politicians, they're paying their salaries, and they're funding the union bosses because now they're paying part of the dues that support them. And those two are sitting there and working together and now possibly colluding to then increase public sector employee compensation. Well, I mean, it's also part of tax. It gets, it, get, it gets, well, I mean, it gets worse because the dues money that the unions have is supporting the infrastructure that is supporting the politicians who they're negotiating with. Exactly. So you have 
taxpayers essentially paying for three things, all of the other side of the table is in this cycle working together. You know, and we see can see situations here where they're going to be negotiating for, say, $10,000 raises for all public sector employees. And then those public sector employees can then go and give more of that to the unions and the unions can give more of that to the politicians while also lining their own pockets. And then the politicians can go back and agree to even higher increases. And so it's just this cycle here. And that's just the dollars and cents of it. I mean, your comments about the teachers unions gets to the actual policies that really hurt people. And another policy that's been hurting Californians. And, and, and yeah, the, the AB5 law. Oh, I was going to say, there's even more. <laughs> cause yeah, you, you uh, we'll, thousands of hold AB, hold AB5 for a second. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, um, the, you know, in addition to, you know, the, the, the policy questions, you also have, you know, in the state pension funds, uh, in places like California, where you have uh, union officers and union back and often union backed politicians on these pension funds, you know they engage in ESG, which has a national effect. Uh, you know, uh, investing for liberal environmental, social, and governance policies. Uh, if they aren't hitting their returns, that puts taxpayers on the hook for uh, any shortfalls. Um, you know, th- this is bad for state finances and for for uh, business management governance across the country. It is. And California is one of the, the worst actors there. Not only are their government union pensions underfunded by tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars now. But on top of that, they're not even getting the returns that they could be because, as you said, they are going after these ESG investments and say they assume an 8% return and the ESG investment provides a 5% return, taxpayers are on the hook for that additional difference between them because they didn't get the best investment returns they could. So now we bring back AB5, as you mentioned <laughs> earlier. Uh, so what it, what is AB5 before for, for those who may not know? AB5 is a California law. It was mostly written by the unions in an effort to get more people into jobs that were easier to unionize. It's difficult to unionize people if they're working for a small business or if they're working for a gig platform like Uber or Lyft. Um, and so they want fewer people to be working. And, for if, and if you're an independent and if you're an independent contractor, if you're an independent contractor, which is how many of these gig platforms classify their workers, you cannot be subject to exclusive monopoly representation, which is what we usually mean when we say unionized. Yes. And so California and in California in the private sector that comes with a forced dues obligation. Correct. You don't have a choice there. So they changed the definition, essentially, of what it means to be an employee versus an independent contractor. And they wrote that with a three-part test that makes it very difficult for a lot of people who want to work for themselves, who want to be their own bosses, to continue doing that. And it's not just the people who are driving for Uber and Lyft or doing TaskRabbit and all these app-based platforms. It's also yoga instructors. It's musicians who are performing one day a week at a church service. It's translators. Um, it's copyright editors. And so it has driven particularly these smaller people who are working on their own, not even for a big company, out of employment 
they've been told by their clients, you know, I'm not allowed to do business with you anymore. My lawyers say it's too risky. We have truckers who have left the state because they're not allowed to operate the truck that they bought and that they own themselves and that they would like to make their living there, but they can't anymore. And add on top of that, of course, the environmental regulations. But what this has done is made it really difficult in California to do business if you want to be your own boss. But there are dozens of carve outs. There's exceptions. Essentially, if you have enough money to lobby the government to get an exception, you get one. And so Uber and Lyft have one now. And that was actually, you know, put to the voters (laughs) and they are exempted from this. And that's what was meant to target. So they're just right. The the union, the unions fought it, fought it hard and they fought it in court. And I'm not I'm actually not sure where it stands right now. But yeah, they they spend lots and lots of money to get a ballot measure that overrode the part of AB5. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, you know, the irony here is, is that the unions want to go after the big companies because they have the most workers that they could potentially unionize. But it's the small guys that it hurts the most because they don't have the money to go out and to hire lawyers and lobbyists, um, you know, to fight these things. And those bad ideas don't stay in California, do they? They don't. There is a similar bill in Congress that is called the PRO Act. And on top of that, you know, reclassification of workers, there are about a dozen other ways that it would hurt workers. Um, But that's not something that could pass Congress right now because there are enough senators and Congress members that are opposed to that. But just yesterday, we had the Department of Labor issue a new rule that changes the definition of what it means to be an employee through the rulemaking process. It's not fully codified into law, but it's providing this guidance and saying, here's a different interpretation. Um, You know, the Trump administration had tried to clarify what it was, because the reality is, is it's really difficult to determine who is an employee and who is an independent contractor based on the laws that are out there. There's one definition from the tax you know, side, the IRS has their own definition just based on control. There's a definition under the National Labor Relations Act, and there's a different definition under the Fair Labor and Standards Act. So we already have a situation where it's difficult for the employer to know, hey, where does this worker fall? But on top of that now, just within the Fair Labor Standards Act, they're actually pulling back what was greater clarity, saying, hey, these two factors are going to be the most important. And now they're going to say, hey, there's six factors and none of them is more important than the other. So this provides more clarity. How? You know, it's just going to add to the cost that businesses face and make and the, it the fair, la- the fair Labor Standards Act. The Fair Labor Standards Act, that's like the federal minimum wage and the federal 40-hour week. Am I right? Yes. Those are the biggest protections it provides. It's just making sure that you are getting at least at seven twenty-five an hour. And if you work more than 40 hours, that you get time and a half for that work. But part of the reason that some people like to be independent and to work for themselves is that they might want to work 10 hours one week and work 50 hours the next week. Um, And that's, you know, their ability to do that is important to them. I think a lot of people don't realize first the scope of how many people work independently or who are, quote, freelancers. More than one out of three Americans do this. And half of the people who do it do it because they say they cannot work for a traditional employer. The majority of them say it's either their own health condition or their caregiving need for either children or another family member who has a health condition. And so being able to be their own independent worker, to be a, quote, independent contractor, to be in charge of their schedule, to choose which jobs they take and they don't take, is the only way they have to earn an income. And when you restrict that and you tell the company, no, you can't treat them as a contractor, you must bring them on as an employee, 
That means the company has to choose either not to employ them all at all or to employ them, but to be totally in control of their schedule and everything about their job. Mm-hmm. So obviously we've mentioned uh, the contractor classification, AB5. Uh, are there any other California labor policies that uh, you know may uh, be taken nationally, uh, that, that our listeners should be aware of? Well, I think the $15 minimum wage started in California. That's racking up to, I think it's $18 an hour there. And we all love to see rising wages, but the reality is, is that they can't come by politicians signing a piece of paper and enacting it into law. The way that people earn a higher wage is by becoming more productive, actually producing more things. And so if they aren't actually producing more things, and it's instead just a law, then you have these unintended consequences. California is struggling with the cost of daycare because, hey, daycare costs go up when you raise your minimum wage. And a lot of those workers are either at the minimum wage or they're competing with them. So it just drives up the costs for everything that Californians buy. And that's you know reason that we're seeing them fleeing the state. So that's one example. Recently, they've been talking about, I'm not sure if it's in law yet, but having a government board that is going to be largely in control of restaurant workers. I don't know why they're targeting that um, fast food industry and saying that, hey, you know, we don't think that the market. I mean, the, the I'm, I'm sure the Service, Employee Inter- Service Employees International Union has something to do with it. Oh, exactly. They're, you know, 100% behind that. And to just <laughs> kind of get this government setting of wages and dictating the labor market. And in the end, that just ends up hurting the people that they claim that they're going to help. And that's the reason that we have things like skyrocketing homelessness in California, why the people who are doing well and making the money are deciding to leave the state and go elsewhere because it's contributing to higher costs for them more regulations, just making life more difficult. So uh, before we let you go, anything else you'd like to let us know about your work or the work of your colleagues over at Heritage? Well, where I work in the Herman Center for the Federal Budget, we are always watching what's happening with federal spending um, and not just the amount of spending. We have now passed $31 trillion in debt but where this spending is going and how that is behind a lot of the bad policies that we're seeing, because it's the source of getting that out there without the funding for a lot of these woke programs and policies, um, they wouldn't exist anymore. And so we have something called the blueprint that we put out each year. And this is a way to balance the budget within 10 years, get federal spending under control, give some power back to the states. Uh, and to prevent what could be a fiscal crisis and absolutely a massive increase in costs for taxpayers. All right. Well, thanks again to Rachel Gressler of the Heritage Foundation for joining us. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week. (music) 